The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Relive one of the greatest icons and most successful teams in sports history, Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls. Stream the Emmy and NAACP Image Award winning series, The Last Dance, on ESPN+. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a Monday afternoon where the Milwaukee Bucks... Yes, the Milwaukee Bucks are one win away from the NBA championship after an absolutely epic win in Phoenix in Game 5, capped by a play that was astounding, ridiculous, crazy, unpredictable, risky, get-out-of-your-chair crazy. I loved every second of it. To help us break down the series where it stands and where we go, the one and only Tim Legler, the master of the iPad, who's just as good as it gets on television and breaking down exactly what is happening in a basketball game, which, you know, can be hard to do. And you see it all in real time. Legs, how are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, yeah, it's been pretty dramatic here. What's what's going on with these finals. And for a guy like myself that you're breaking down games after it's kind of an analyst dream to get some of these endings in close games. So you can break down some of these, you know, game defining plays late. There's been, there's been a number of them over the last couple of games. For, I have to start with a very important question. When I watch you on TV, and this goes for anyone who's like, this goes for John King and anyone who's on the tele. Like, are you ever afraid the iPad is going to malfunction? <laughs> you're going to click on the wrong icon and you're, you're not going to be like, has, have you ever had an iPad choke on TV? I, that, that is the oh only God, thing yeah. I would be thinking about. Biggest fear in the world. Are you kidding me? It's nothing more embarrassing than when you're going to hit something and it's not working. Now, I'm not nervous about my operation of the mechanics of it. I, I'm pr- I've just put so much time into it, but it's no, but you're, you're relying on technology not failing you. And there's nothing worse than when something freezes up and you can't do anything about it. So, yeah, they, t- to this day, every time I go on and they hand me that iPad and I told him what plays I want to do and I'm ready to go. And they hand it to me and then Scott Van Pelt or somebody teased me up up until the second I touched that thing with that pencil. I'm nervous the entire time that this is not going to work and it's just going to be embarrassing dead air here for a few seconds. So you're watching the games and as the games are going on, you're flagging, Hey, get me this play at six Oh five of the second quarter. That's interesting. Like probably by the end, some of them have become less interesting because the way the game is developed, right? Like you, you like the way the trends, the trend lines could, but you're flagging all during the game. That's a great question. So over the course of a game, particularly the finals, I'm going to probably have 12 to 15 pages of notes by the time that game ends. And you're a hundred percent right. So there are storylines throughout the game that you're following. And so I'll have to write down time score. And so I can, and a quick note on the play. And then you're trying to see a pattern. One team's up, let's say the sun's take an early lead. And now you're looking at, wow, okay, they had success in pick and roll in these, a couple examples, there's a story to tell here, but Oh, wait a second. The bucks just went on a 16 0 run. Now the bucks are in the lead. So now you're going to continue to take notes because you ultimately want to talk about why a team was able to win. Like you, you're kind of going to focus on that team more um, unless it's just an egregious mistake that a team will make. And then you're going to point it out. This is what cost them the game. So yes, it's going to take on multiple storylines. And I always tell the people that are cutting, that are helping me find these plays. I say, they'll hit me up like at halftime. Hey, what do you think? And I'm like, wait a second. You know, it's a four point game. 
I guarantee you're going to waste your time right now if you go try to pull these plays for me because there's going to be a whole other storyline in the second half. So it's tough because the other thing is I'm on right after the game. So if that game comes down to the last possession and maybe that's the play that I want to do a breakdown of, you're going to be literally waiting until the last second. And now they've got, it takes them a few seconds to go find the play to get it to load onto the iPad, all that stuff. So yes, it's definitely dicey, but I make it easy for them because I literally give them the most specific time and score to go find this exact play. Give me that possession and then the rest is up to me to make it sing when I get the uh, get the opportunity. Yeah, we do these post-game podcasts almost right after the game. Me and Brian Windhorst, and we usually have a guest. And they all are annoyed at me because I'm always the last one to get in the Zoom. Because I'm like, I just need 10 <laughs> minutes to look at the box score, review some video. And they're all just like, like poor Nick Nurse, you know, is sitting there like, where the hell is this guy? But anyway, so here's where we are with the finals. It's 3-2 bucks. They've won three straight. I want to start here. There's been a lot of attention in the last three games, all Bucks wins, uh, about how Milwaukee has gradually kind of strangled the Suns' offense. And after game five, the attention was on, well, Devin Booker, they're just forcing him to score. He's not playmaking anymore. Look at his potential assists are way down. But here's what we are when we really zoom out. Milwaukee is winning because their offense is producing at an elite rate. So for the series, 117.5 points per 100 possessions for the Bucks. That would led, have led the league over Brooklyn. 115.5 for Phoenix would have just about led the league. Here's another one for you. In the last three games, all losses, Phoenix effective field goal percentage, 57.5, would have led the league, and they still lost all three games for reasons we could talk about down the line. Even in games three and four in Milwaukee, which were kind of duds, their effective field goal percentage would have ranked like ninth or 10th overall. Phoenix has shot the hell out of it the entire series. Their offense, by and large, has not been the problem. The bigger story is the Bucks are scoring like gangbusters. So I want to start there because I feel like that's being underplayed. What are you seeing? Why is the Bucks offense working? Half-court transition, pick whatever area you want to focus on. And what are some answers, if any, the Suns might have? Yeah, so the problem right now for Phoenix is, and, and look, if they end up losing this series, to me, the storyline going forward for the Phoenix Suns is going to be great story. They emerged this year. They're on the map now. But we have to also be honest. In a normal year, if the Lakers don't break down, if the Clippers don't break down physically, probably if Jamal Murray doesn't go down, Phoenix Suns are not in the NBA Finals. They weren't ready to take this leap. Injuries played a large part in it because what is what is you're seeing now is this. They need another guy. They need another guy that can go create offense for themselves at a high level. Now, we thought, hey, Chris Paul can do that. Did it in game one. He has effectively been just completely worn down in this series with Drew Holiday and the full court pressure, and it's obviously taken a toll on him. And when you look at the rest of the roster, they need – plays made for them, the Jay Crowders, the Mikhail Bridges, the Gattery Aitons of the world. They need another guy. Now, the Bucks have three of those guys right now. With Holiday playing this aggressively, they've got three guys that can win a matchup at any time against anyone. Suns don't have that. They have one guy that can do that. So as and it's, it, you're 100% right. When you look at Phoenix, you say, my goodness, 40-plus out of Booker the other night. 
41 out of eight in a Chris Paul, which you, you sign up for that every night if you're Monty Williams. You get average games out of Mikhail Bridges and Jay Crowder. They go for 23, and you still lose because you can't guard them. You don't have enough personnel to guard all three of those guys when Drew Holiday is playing this well um, offensively. So for me, what it comes down to is they just have more guys capable of putting it on the floor and getting whatever shot is required based on the way they're being played. And Phoenix, at the end of the day, is having a difficult time matching them bucket for bucket. Um, Yeah, and I think, again, that Bucks offense number is the number of the series. And the other number of the series, by the way, to your point about Chris Paul, and and this is like, I knew it was bad, but it's so bad. In 40 minutes with Booker off the floor – and Paul on the floor. So the minute you're counting on Chris Paul, like you got to get us over the finish line. I know you're old. I know you're banged up. I know you're six feet on a good day against some big dudes. You got to get us something. 40 minutes minus 37. A point a minute the Suns are losing those minutes. And I wonder in the next game if they're going to get desperate and try to play campaign with Chris Paul in all those minutes just for a little juice. But I got news for you. That's another undersized and very, very skinny defender the Bucs are going to go after. And in 28 minutes, CP3 plus campaign minus 26. And those are obviously the same subset of minutes. But that the Bucs offense and them just obliterating the Suns when Booker is on the bench are, are the two big numbers of the series. I love it. And I think, look, here's the point I'm making about Chris Paul. And it started after game two. Now, we were all scratching our heads at what Budenholzer and the Bucs were trying to accomplish in the first game. Defensively, made no sense. All those switches, all those drop coverage against the two of the best mid-range players in the league, you're dropping your big off 15 feet from the screen defensively. Letting these guys come off and get into 18, 20-foot area to floor, which is exactly where they want to be, unguarded. The switches, they got to operate against whoever they wanted to in the first game. All right, so we all, you know, we railed about that after the game. They made the adjustment. What I don't understand with Monty Williams of the Phoenix Suns, why is Chris Paul bringing the ball up the floor, every dead ball, every time there's a walk-up situation after a made basket or a turnover or a dead ball situation. Why? All he's doing is getting picked up by a dude that looks like a strong safety in the NFL, in Drew Holiday, who is allowed now, because it's the finals, bump, chest him up, hit him with your forearm, slide laterally quick enough to just make Chris Paul take seven, eight seconds to get it over half court. He's been turned four times. He's getting hit constantly. He's 36 years old. By the time he gives it up and he gets it back later in possession, he's gassed. It's obvious to me. So I think there's one adjustment for Monty Williams. And if you do take Booker off the floor, you're going to have to play Cameron Payne more with Chris Paul. No matter what those numbers say, someone else has to be the primary guy bringing the ball up the floor to let Chris Paul jog up the floor. Go down toward the baseline, come off a screen. Now, the first time I catch it, I'm Chris Paul. I'm at 25 feet with a live dribble. One screen, I'm coming off getting into my area. I didn't work like a practice drill we do in training camp where a guy's turning it 13 times. And now all of a sudden, okay, I'm over half court. I'm I'm breathing heavy. I give it up. Over the course of 48 minutes, I can't imagine the toll that that's taking on him right now. They've got to get the ball out of his hands in those walk-it-up situations, whether that's Booker handling the ball, Cameron Payne plays more, 
you know, even a guy like Mikhail Bridges, who's not going to be pressured that much by Middleton in the backcourt, if it just means, hey, bring it up, and then Chris Paul can get it back over half court, anything to reduce the amount of effort he's putting into handling the ball right now, you're going to have to do it because that dude, Chris Paul, I mean, he has to be really, really, really good offensively for them to have a shot in game six. Let me preface this by saying to all the Milwaukee fans, I know that Dante DiVincenzo is hurt. He was a huge part of your team. He's a starter. It's a huge deal that they're winning this series 3-2 without Dante DiVincenzo. Um, you mentioned the Suns need another guy. This guy is not another guy guy. But after game two, and it was 2-0 in the bleary morning hours when we're doing that podcast, I said, one reason I don't think this series is even close to over, and I actually don't feel so bad about being down 2-0 is I'm the Bucks. If I'm the Bucks, is... Torrey Craig had just gotten injured. Now he comes back and he's fine. It looks fine. Saric injury out for the season. And I said, like, they're just getting to the point where they don't have enough guys. And one of my primary worries about that is the more you extend Chris Paul, the more the load is on him. He's 36 and he gets hurt at the end of every season, like clockwork. And it's just, it's, he's small. It's just hard. And Saric, again, he's not a guy but he has a little bit of that playmaking five to him, like run some dribble handoffs, facilitate, just like a little bit, a few possessions a game, just a little, like, I don't think that has swung the series to Milwaukee. I don't think that's why Milwaukee is winning. We can talk about those issues, but I do think that injury has mattered. No, it definitely has. And and, and the night it happened, I said that, because here's the thing, just look at their depth up front. And Saric is not a guy that people are going to look at and say, oh, you know, Huge difference maker. I disagree. The other thing he does defensively, he his body's in the way all the time. He knows how to get in there, get in front of people, cause traffic. It makes it harder to accomplish stuff. He can get a guy on his back on a box out. Look at the number of offensive rebounds that Portis and Antetokounmpo and P.J. Tucker are coming up with. And when you watch the replay, you're like, oh, my God, look at poor Devin Booker sinking down trying to put a body on Antetokounmpo because Aiton went to pick up a guard on penetration. That would be maybe a guy like Saric in there. So it, it's just 15, 16 minutes a night, but they're enormous minutes on a team that is that depleted with their size. And you're going into the series, Zach, I said, Giannis Antetokounmpo destroys small teams. If you don't have length and physical size and girth to put in front of him, when he's striding to the rim, he's going to destroy you. And Saric was like one other guy that you could put there to get in the way. And Giannis has a propensity, run people over to try to, you know, force the action and he'll commit offensive fouls to turn the ball over. But when you're throwing guys like Mikhail Bridges in that driving lane, you're throwing guys like Jay Crowder, they're smaller guys. Even though Jay Crowder's thick, he's short. His arms aren't that long. They're not going to bother a guy like Giannis. A guy like Saric just understands how to use his body to clog things up. So it's been a really, really tough loss for Phoenix to overcome. Yet, I still think if Chris Paul had been better somewhere, you know, games three through five, certain stretches, maybe Phoenix right now is up 3-2 with an opportunity to end this thing in the next two games. But I think, to me, the biggest storyline in this series right now for me has been how tired he looks how gassed he looks 
He just doesn't have the ability to carry that team offensively the way he did in game one right now. I don't know if he's found it in the 48 hours off since uh, in, in before game six. Okay, you nailed a couple of things there. The size issue um, is huge, and sometimes you forget this. It's huge in transition because the only big guy the Suns have on the floor is Aiton, and he's so close to the rim on offense, he's never going to be one of the first two or three guys back in transition. For the series, the Bucks have gotten out in transition at a pretty high level, not quite as much as their regular season level, which was number one in the league, but a pretty high frequency. Some of that is opportunism. Some of that is I think the Suns have been a little sloppy here and there with their floor balance and their transition defense. And some of that is just that's how the Bucks play. That's how they want to play. They are scoring, and this is for cleaning the glass, 153 points per 100 possessions in transition, which would have led the league by such a far amount. It's ridiculous. Obviously, it's a tiny sample size, but I do think it's indicative of something you just said, which is when those guys get downhill, and it's not just Giannis, Jay Crowder's not bothering them. Mikhail Bridges might bother them a little bit because his arms are like 19 feet long, but he's too skinny. He's not bothering them. Aiton's the only guy that if Giannis saw him with a head of steam, he'd at least think for a second, like, okay, I might have to make a move here. Without him, they just have no size. And the other thing is you mentioned the offensive rebounding. A little subtle adjustment that I don't think got enough play in game five was um, Phoenix switching Booker onto P.J. Tucker, which forced Chris Paul to guard Drew Holiday. And I think they made that switch mostly because P.J. Tucker was beating the crap out of Chris Paul on the offensive glass, and they just wanted a little more size, a little more size on the boards, and a little more size from coming from the corner to rotate. And that's all well and good, and I think Phoenix did a better job boxing out. But again, now Chris Paul's got to guard Drew Holiday, who's super involved in the offense and really, really physical. And, like, that's no picnic. No, it's not. It's a, it's a tough dilemma. It's, it speaks to their overall roster. What's going to happen? Look, I expect the Bucs to win this series now. I, I picked the Suns in seven going in. Uh, I, you know, I was counting on certain things that I was going to be able to get out of Chris Paul to make that happen. I don't think we're going to see it. I think what's going to happen here, the Suns are going to realize they got a taste of this, which is great. They've got a young team. They've got a lot of confidence now. They're connected. They've got great chemistry. They don't have enough. Their roster is not enough. And again, we're talking about they ended up with the Bucks. okay? You didn't get the Nets. You didn't get the Lakers. Clippers were knocked out. Philly got taken out, you know, for Milwaukee. So all these teams you looked at as saying they've got enough star power, they're not there at the end of this. So Phoenix has to – and Denver's another team. If you look at these teams and being realistic about it, if you come up short, you can't think to yourself, all right, man, we're right there. Let's run this thing back. No, it's going to be a totally different landscape in the Western Conference next year when these guys come back. So Phoenix has to get longer on the wing with another guy who can score and defend. It's not easy to find. Look, if you got a guy like that, you're going to keep him. So it's not easy to do that if you're James Jones. That's what ultimately they're going to learn about themselves through this. Because you're right, in the open floor, backpedaling defenders like Chris Paul, Cameron Payne, and Devin Booker that is laughable for a guy like Giannis. It is. Even a guy like Drew Holiday, who's so thick and strong. You know, Chris Middleton is 6'8". It, it's just they're not presenting enough of a physical challenge to them. I don't know how that's going to change for game six. It's almost going to take, Zach, I was asked this question earlier today. You know, what's it going to take on the part of Phoenix? And I said, you know what? Listen, Booker had 40-plus. They got 
pretty good games out of Chris Paul and Aiton overall statistically. Their role players played pretty well. They still lost. I think it's less about what does Phoenix need to do as it is something has to go wrong for Milwaukee, meaning Drew Holiday has another horrific shooting night. Chris Middleton just has one of those nights, man, four for 18, can't throw it in the ocean. Foul trouble. Something on Milwaukee's end has to go wrong, I think, for them to lose this game. Because Phoenix is doing everything they can really offensively, and it's still not enough. It's going to take somebody not showing up for the Bucks or foul trouble or somebody gets hurt. Something like that, I think, for the Phoenix Suns to get this thing back for a Game 7. Now, win or lose this series, I'm a little more bullish on the Suns, I guess, next year or the year after, medium term, whatever you want to call that, than you are. Because I do think if they get – I agree with you that they have to look at themselves honestly and say, like, we're not the favorites in the West. Like we're not, we're, we're, we're not walking into next season. Like we made the finals we're the favorites in the West. I do think they can look at themselves and say, even without a real upgrade or like Aiton's going to continue to get better. Bridges will continue to get better. Like, I do think they can look at themselves and say, we think we can go toe to toe with any of these guys in the West and have a long series. And sometimes you win. And sometimes like, I think they're legitimately that good, but I agree with you. They, they, they can't just look at themselves as, as favorites. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. On Milwaukee's offense, just a couple of last things. The transition stuff, and I thought their half-court offense for the series is now up to league average production. And when you consider that they're going against a really good half-court defense, that's actually kind of better than league average. And le better than league average for Milwaukee's half-court offense is like you throw a parade in, in Milwaukee for that. It's been trending the right way the whole series. I thought Bud had some nice adjustments and some nice tweaks um, in Game 5 that I talked about on the podcast, so I don't want to belabor here. I want to go to, I think, the most interesting question that I wanted to ask you is, all this attention on... Um, Booker's ISOs and CP's ISOs leading only to kind of mid-range shots for them and no corner threes, no kickout threes, no anything like that. Phoenix has 30 corner three attempts for the series. 30. 
six per game. They averaged 10 per game in the regular season. Of those 30 legs, 17 came in game two. That means they have 13 in four games. Like, you just kind of walk into three-corner threes a game, and they, they're, they're barely getting that. So when you watch Booker get Pat Connaughton on a switch, when you watch Chris Paul get Bobby Portis on a switch, or Pat Connaughton on a switch, and go into attack mode, why are those attacks not leading to the kind of shots that they led to in those first two games? What is Milwaukee doing to, to force those? Because it's not like Pat Connaughton can stay in front of Devin Booker. Like, so what are they doing? I think the biggest thing is what Milwaukee is not doing, and, I'm, and I give them credit for this because it's not easy. When a guy gets cooking, especially like Devin Booker has, is to overreact to that in terms of overcommitting help that's unnecessary. And when you do that, that's when all of a sudden now a Jay Crowder has a six made three night. Mikhail Bridges knocks down three corner threes. Cameron Payne has a game like he had earlier in the playoffs where he goes off offensively. The Bucs are doing a good job in saying, listen, this guy's making an incredible number of difficult shots. And for that individual defender, it can be a little bit demoralizing, but they're not going to overreact to it. If this guy's got to take 33 shots to get 40 points, because all those shots are 15 to 18 foot jump shots with a hand in his face, have at it. Have as many of those as you want, because eventually, and this is what I worry about for Booker and for Phoenix in a game six, you know, one of these nights coming up here, that ball's not going to go in at this rate. It's just not. I mean, look, think even if he has a, a 10 for 23 game with 27 points, by any measure, pretty damn good finals game. The Bucs will take that in a second because they're going to go, they can't win unless this guy's playing at the level he's playing at the last two games. So that's what it is. They're not overreacting to that stuff, you know. They're going to let him make those shots. I compared him the other night in game four. That was one of the best individual one-on-one oh. -on -one mid range jump shot performances I've ever oh. seen. Right? Outrageous. So, Outrageous. Zach, I, I put it up there in a category with no six, but the difference there, he's getting the line 20 times a night. He was killing at Dallas at the line that year, but his mid range game in that series was unbelievable. Kawhi Leonard, his run, Dirk in 2011 everything's mid-range, off the dribble, hand in their face. That's what it reminded me of. And I'm just saying, man, how long can this guy keep this up before he's like human and he reverts back to what you're supposed to make in that situation, which is like 43% of those. And when he does that, how the hell is Phoenix going to score enough points because they're not getting to the line enough and, and Milwaukee's not going to bail out by coming off the strong side corner uh, and give up a three. So how do they continue to do this? So it, it, it is a big factor. You're going to give guys mid-range jumpers, twos from that area of the floor to hand in your face, have as many as you want. Ultimately, in today's NBA, you need to mix in more threes and free throws, and that's just not what Devin Booker is going to give them with his style of game. And the Bucs, as long as they stay disciplined, they're going to be in good shape. Yeah, the Bucs are really playing – playing the math in this series. They're saying, you're not going to get threes, you're not going to get free throws, and we're going to win the possession game because of our offensive rebounding and our turnover rate is so low. We're just going to win based on math and execution of our math, basically. So so I think, uh, to your point, I think, the, and you mentioned it after game one where they, where they switched Lopez and just got torched and all this. Um, 
they have found the right balance on defense. And Milwaukee, to their credit, they kind of wriggle into these series. They get hit, and they're like, okay, let's wriggle over here and try this. Let's wriggle over here and try that. And by game five, it's like, okay, they've wriggled their way to the right thing. Um, when Lopez is in the game, they're playing something close to their traditional pick-and-roll defense now with Lopez coming up a little higher on the screens. And, like, he got blown by one game by one play in Game 5 by Booker for a tough lefty layup. But for the most part, he's keeping everybody in front of him, getting back to meet Aiton at the charge circle and forcing Aiton into tough shots when they hit him on the roll. When Lopez is out of the game, they're switching everything. And the key to your point is when Connaughton's on Booker, and that's the matchup we're seeing over and over again, they have faith in Connaughton that if you get beat, you're still gonna you're still gonna be on his inside shoulder. You're not gonna just be like completely roasted behind the play. And Aiton is in the game, which means we're gonna have Giannis on Aiton because that's who Giannis is guarding when Lopez is out of the game near the rim. And so he's gonna pull up from 13 feet because he sees Giannis. You're gonna be on his inside shoulder. Everyone else flash a little bit, but not too far. Stay on the shooters and. They have found the right, and you have to credit them because you see like P.J. Tucker on Mikhail Bridges. He'll take like a half step in. Hey, you see me, but that's all you do. You don't see me right in front of you. I'm right back at my guy. And I think they've just found the the right, and, and Bobby Portis is sort of in the middle of those schemes, and he's held up well enough on switches that they could continue to switch with him. I just think they've found, again, it's not quote-unquote working because Phoenix is scoring the hell out of it, but their offense has declined in games three and four, and the shot making was incredible in game five. They've just found the right mix. And I think you nailed it with like, like some of the overhelping in game one and two. Yeah. And I think here's another adjustment they've made, which I love. So in the first game, any screen that was said, it was an automatic handoff, Chris Paul switch. Sometimes and I broke this down after the first game, there were times they switched. There wasn't even a screen set. It ended up being a slip. Like the, like the, the big guy would come over to screen like Aiton. He wouldn't even get to Chris Paul, whoever was guarding him, whether it was Holiday or Tucker, who are the two guys I want on Chris Paul, but Budenholzer. Like Aiden would get within six feet of the screen, and they were switching. And I'm going, well, how unnecessary is that? What's the point of it? So what? here's what's going on now. They'll switch if you flat – if Drew Holiday flat out gets hit with a screen and he just can't get there. But more often, watch what he's doing now. He's getting hit. Chris Paul's coming off the screen. Holiday is then pursuing him and chasing him and getting back in at least next to him with enough help by the big so he can't just pull up and shoot an 18-footer, whether it's Lopez or Giannis or Portis. They're high enough so that they can slide laterally, and then here comes Drew Holiday. He's sprinting back. Now Chris Paul picks it up. Drew Holiday is back on him again for the rest of the possession. They weren't doing that in the first game. Drew Holiday was handing him off. Every single time he crossed half court, first pick comes here. You go now. He's somebody else's responsibility. And I was saying to myself, you know what it reminded me of? I'm a huge football fan, huge NFL fan. Washington football team is my team. We got Josh Norman a few years ago. Prime still. He came in. I was so excited. I'm like, God, we needed lockdown cover cover corner. First game I watched, Josh Norman lines up on the other team's top receiver, and what happens? The guy they they run him in motion to the other side of the field. Josh Norman stays on the left side of the field, and I'm going, I don't understand. You just gave this guy all this money, <laughs> and he's not hes not running with this guy who is clearly their best receiver. And meanwhile, this other cornerback is getting torched on the other side of the field. That's kind of what they were doing with Drew Holiday in the first game, and I'm saying, I don't understand it. This is what you got him for, and guess what? They've made the adjustment. So watch game six. How many times Drew Holiday gets screened, brush screened, whatever, 
and he continues to chase Chris Paul down the lane to where Chris Paul eventually picks it up, and now Drew Holiday's back on him, and he doesn't get a shot off, and when he gives it up, Drew Holiday's on him for the rest of the possession. It's a subtle thing, but it's made an enormous difference in keeping Drew Holiday on Chris Paul to wear down that energy source because that, to me, is almost like a video game. His power meter is just draining as the game goes on, and he's just not the offensive impact player that the Suns need him to be for most of the game. He was really good the other night late. I'll give him credit. But it was too too little too late by that time. The game was pretty much in hand for the Bucs by the time he finally started putting the ball in the basket. You mentioned – you said the word slip. And, and one thing that I'm going to be interested in is when the Bucs go small with Giannis at center and he's guarding Aiton. He's guarding Aiton even when Portis is in the game too. I wonder if there's a way for Phoenix, instead of hunting Connaughton like that, to bring up Aiton as the screener and say, because we just want Giannis out of the way. We just don't want him at the rim because if he's at the rim, we're just not getting anywhere. And see if Aiton can get some slips to the rim for lobs, some post-ups, like something on the other end of those switches. Instead of going at Connaughton over and over, Giannis is just sitting there at the rim. All their giant help defenders are behind the play instead of in the play. And I thought maybe they could get some traction over that. I also thought there was a couple times when Booker attacked from the sideline instead of at the top, and they got those like corner-to-corner passes for threes. I kind of liked that. I just think they need to tinker a little bit with how they do their hunting, mix it up a little bit. And I, I'm very curious. It seems counterintuitive to bring Giannis into the play like that, but I just think maybe they could get Aiton involved a little more, maybe just get Giannis out of the way. Does any of that make sense? I did a touch screen play after game one or two. I don't remember where. It must have been game one. So they ran the ball screen with, with Giannis. He switched. Aiton slipped. P.J. Tucker switched onto him. And now P.J. Tucker was fronting DeAndre Ayton in the post, and they ran a simple high-low where they flashed from the weak side to Cam Johnson. They hit him at the foul line, and they dumped it right over the top to DeAndre Ayton for an uncontested layup. I do think DeAndre Ayton – we're going to talk a lot about Chris Paul. He's going to be scrutinized, I mean, you know, for eternity. He needs to be better. We understand that. But where else can it come from? I'm asking myself. Because I don't think – Bridges is not on that level yet where he can just go, okay, we need more out of you. He's not that kind of player, Jay Crowder either. So to me, Aiden is the guy that they can target to get the ball to based on how the Bucs react to their ball screen. They did a great job of it in game one, and now it's been diminished. They That to me is where that supplemental action can come from. Aiden can win those matchups when they get any kind of switch with anybody on him really besides Giannis. And I think that is something maybe they can target in game six. The other, you just mentioned Tucker. The other thing they're doing is when they do get Aiton with a switch, when Phoenix does get that, and it's not Giannis and it's not Tucker, they're having Tucker run in from the corners, like sometimes a really long way and rescue that little guy away from Aiton. And like, if you know that's coming and the distance that he's covering is really, really large, you've got to find a way to exploit that window. Like maybe you have some flare screens going on on the other side where there's a two-on-one. I thought they missed some chances to, to hurt. And now that they know that's coming, maybe they can hurt that. But I, th- this is why the playoffs are so cool, all this tactical stuff. But the bottom line is if Phoenix doesn't find a way to stop the Bucks' offense it, it, and the math has been tilting toward the Bucks the entire series, I, I agree that this is going to be over in six. And um, 
selfishly, I'm hoping for seven because who doesn't love a, a game seven? But if you ask me to predict, and I'm like you, I picked Suns in seven at the start of the series. Now, I will admit part of that was like we just didn't know what we were going to see out of Giannis. Like we had to make those predictions when he was uncertain. Uh, we didn't know the injury, but I, I still thought pretty good about Suns in seven after the first two games and the response from the Bucks has just been phenomenal. Any any parting thoughts? Yeah, I think what it's going to take, I, I just believe if you're the Suns, the best you can hope for, continue to you know hopefully have as much success offensively as you had the other night. You're going to have to just hope one of those two guys, whether it's Middleton or Holiday, because I, I just don't think you're going to limit Giannis. Giannis is going to get to 30. It, he's just too tough of a matchup um, for any team, but especially a team that's smaller like the Suns. It's Middleton or Holiday. One of those two guys has to be targeted by Monty Williams. You got to say, okay, three guys combined for 88. We have to get one of those two guys to have a subpar night. Whatever that means, whatever extra people you – and look, you might do that, and it still might not be enough because then Brooke Lopez hits five threes or Pat Connaughton kills you or whatever it may be. That might happen. I know this. If you're Monty Williams, you're going to look at that tape. You say, wait a second. All three of these guys cannot be in this comfort zone. And you're not going to target Giannis. It's got to be Middleton or Holiday. Get it to a one-possession game with three minutes to go and make the Bucks feel an enormous amount of pressure knowing that's their last home game. I think that's your best-case scenario. Uh, come up with something to get the ball out of one of those two guys' hands. Make Middleton or Holiday see more traffic. Make him give it up. Make him certainly not get into a rhythm early if you're Middleton. And hope that you can keep it close to make the Bucks feel the enormity of the situation and the pressure in that building of having to try to close this out because 90% of the time, the home team wins a game seven. And they're going to feel that late. And that's all you can hope for if you're Monty Williams. And just don't get hit with that huge blitz early because there, this isn't going to be like it was in Phoenix where Suns go up 16 but the Bucs have, have three star players offensively. You can make up that deficit. If it's Phoenix that gets down 16 early, it's a wrap. So don't get hit with an early gut punch. Target Middleton or Holiday. Probably, in my opinion, it would be more Holiday. He can't do this. He cannot do what he did the other night. And then let's just pray we're within arm's reach with three minutes to go. And maybe Giannis feels it at the foul line or whatever it may be. And to give us a chance. That's the formula for the Suns. It's interesting because they have they've maybe six or seven times in the series, the Suns have blitzed Middleton on the pick and roll. And I haven't liked it at all, even though it theoretically makes sense. And I don't know if I haven't liked it because it opens up a rim run for Giannis or they seem ready for it or it's just not the way Phoenix has played this year, so they're not accustomed to it. But I, I, do, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more of it. All right, Legs. You're, you're amazing on television. It's great to have you on. One-time Phoenix Sun, Tim Legler, by the way. That's People right. forget. For rookie a brief Tim, time. Rookie Tim Legler was with KJ, Jeff Hornacek, Marley. Any fun stories from that? That was a, You lost. You went to the conference finals that year. Any fun stories from that Phoenix great, team? Yeah, great story. I joined that team midseason, and I remember I come in, and it's you know, a crazy situation when you're coming. I came in initially on a 10-day contract, and you go in there. You don't know anybody. I missed shoot around because I didn't get there till the afternoon. I go to the hotel. So I, now I walk into the locker room for a game and we're getting ready to play. And I haven't met any of these guys except Marley's the only uh, Tim Perry. I knew also. So I go in the locker room. I, you know, put my uniform on and say hi to some guys. I'm sitting there. We're like late first quarter. 
And Cotton Fitzsimmons was the head coach, and he had that southern draw. And all of a sudden, I just hear, Langler! I just, you know, my, I like look down. He's like, you're in. You know, so I go up to the table. I don't know any plays. I know nothing that's going on. I'm getting ready to walk on the court. And I don't know, probably three or four possessions into the game, I we get a defensive rebound. I run the left wing. Kevin Johnson's pushing the ball up the middle of the floor, kicks it out to me. I got a little 18-footer on the baseline, pull-up jumper in transition. Let it go, all net, and run it back. And KJ kind of pointed at me and winked at me, run it back. And it was like one of the you know, obviously coolest feelings of my life, man. It was my first NBA points. Uh, and it was from Kevin Johnson on a team that ended up going to the conference finals that had you know Tom Chambers and Marley Jeff Hornacek. Kurt Rambis was on that team, by the way, uh, finishing up his career. Great group of guys, great coaching staff. Paul Westfall, Lionel Hollins were on that staff. Um, but that will always stand out to me. My first NBA points coming from a guy like Kevin Johnson, who had the faith to kick it out to a guy he just met 15 minutes ago <laughs> on the break. Today, they today they chastise you for not going out to the corner and making it oh, a three. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. That's so true. The, the, the three on one with both wings flare out to the three point line that didn't exist when I played. I wasn't even sure that that 18 footer was a great shot. At that time, the way the way the league thought, you're thinking layup break. I mean, layup or dunk or free throws on a fast break, not flare out for an 18 footer. But you're right; I would have got yelled at because it wasn't a three. All right, Tim Legler, we'll look for, we'll look for you on TV. Thanks for joining the Low Post. Always great to get your analysis. Uh, thank you, sir. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. All right, I'm very excited about this. Let's bring in our next guest, the lead assistant coach for a little team you might have heard of called the Golden State Warriors. But that's not why we're having him on. Mike Brown, the head coach of the Nigerian national team, headed to the Olympics in Tokyo in a few days. And I wanted to have you on because you guys beat Team USA in Vegas. And then Australia beats Team USA in Vegas. And of course, since, you know, we're in the U.S. and we must be the subject of every story and every story must be about us. The story is what's wrong with team USA. We're collapsing. Yeah. It's a calamity. I say, Hey, say there's a cool story brewing in Nigeria and what it could mean for African basketball and, and the yes. whole sport of basketball down the line. I want to talk about that story. So coach Brown, thank you for coming on. How you doing? I'm doing great. And I appreciate you talking about that, 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 you know, cause a lot of people aren't given the credit to, Nigeria and African basketball and highlighting that and, and it's refreshing to have somebody speak of it in a positive manner because one of the things we're looking to do is we're trying to unite not just Nigeria but all of, all of Africa the whole continent so 
I thank you for having me on, but more importantly, thank you for having me on and bringing that to light. How did this job come to you? Because I was Googling around and I couldn't find a good article that explained to me the pathway of, I mean, obviously you're a great and accomplished coach. They, they're, they're happy to have you. But how did you specifically come to this opportunity? So I, I got tipped off in I think, uh, like November of 2019, uh, or maybe October or something like that, 2019, that the Nigerian Basketball Federation was going to come ask me to be their head coach. And at the time, I had heard a lot of horror stories about what was going on with their program. And, you know, sometimes the guys would get to the airport, the tickets aren't there and so on and so forth. So right away, I told uh, one of our assistants, Jaron Collins, I said, hey, JC, I'm going to get this call. I'm not going to take the job. I'm going to give it to you because it'd be great for you as a young coach. And JC was excited. Well, they waited a while to call me. So it was two or three weeks later when they called me. So I had forgotten about it called me really early, early in the morning. I look at my phone, it's a, it's, it's a call from France. And so I answer it. Well, the president of the Federation, he was an exec for Total Oil Company based in France. So he was using his work phone. And when I answered it, he just started right away with a spiel. And just to hear his vision and his passion over the phone got my blood boiling. Uh, after that phone call was probably about an hour, hour and a half, uh, I reached out to people, you know, Greg Popovich, uh, Joe Dumars, uh, Kim Bahuni, uh, Sean Ford, some, other, some people that know international basketball and then also that I bounce ideas off of whenever I have opportunities. And, and everybody to T said, yes, the program's been tough, but what a fantastic experience to be a head coach of a team that's already in the Olympics. And I, 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 felt, I felt the same. And so I, I agreed to do it about a month later. And from there, I've had two feet in, uh, I've become real passionate about it, I've become passionate about the country, about basketball in, in Africa just in general, and here we are today. Now, I believe you have yet to set foot in Nigeria, is that correct? That, that is correct. I, I was scheduled to go before the pandemic. Um, you know, I was going to go to Lagos and, and run a training camp because we had the top 25 players that live in Nigeria identified. And so that was going to be the first leg of our training camp. Also hold a coach's clinic and then go from there to Abuja to the capital because uh, some uh, some dignitaries in the government wanted to meet me and talk to me and so on and so forth. The pandemic comes, all those plans go out the window. And, uh, and you know, until uh, the, the first qualifier, the Afro Baskets in November 2020 in Kigali, Rwanda, I actually went to Kigali, Rwanda and coached in that tournament. So uh, I haven't been to... to to Nigeria yet. Looking forward to the day that I can go, but a lot of it was due to the pandemic because we had a, a, a we had it all planned out for it to happen. Now, on your team that played these exhibition games, you have a whole bunch of current and very recently former NBA players. Like a third of the Miami Heat are on your team. <laughs> Precious Sachua, Kizzy Okpala, Gabe Vincent, Chimeze Metu from the Spurs, Jalil Okafor, Mieone from Utah, Epe Udo, who's been in the league, Josh Okogie. And then, there, of course, there are other guys who are really, really good, who we can talk about later, who are of Nigerian heritage. But, like, when did you start to realize there's a huge, like, forget the, everyone, and Masai Ujiri talks about this all the time, yeah. the, the untapped talent base in Nigeria. And that's a real thing, and we're going to talk about that. But when did you realize, well, wait a second, there's a, there's a huge talent base right here in the league that I coach in, and this could be... This could be a big, big, big time opportunity, not just for this feel good developmental story and all that, but like to win, to win some major games. 
early on, and, and I say that Zach because I, I it's it's hard for me. I got a little OCD in me. I'm getting better. I'm getting a little better, <laughs> but but it was hard for me just to think that I'm going to take this team and coach them in the Olympics and then bail. Uh, so I, I wanted to try to do this as right as I could. And what did that mean? That meant trying to find out who was of Nigerian descent or who was born over there and, and, and were, were eligible to play. And I actually started diving into college kids. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, there's going to be a whole bunch of kids that are in college right now that will get drafted. And this is in, 20, in the 2020 NBA draft. So the NBA, as, as the head coach of the Nigerian team, I'm allowed to call high school kids. I'm allowed to call college kids for the program. I can't talk Golden State Warriors uh, basketball at all or NBA basketball, but I can talk about the Nigerian program. So I, I actually started talking to Precious Achua before he was drafted by the Heat. He and I were talking when he was at Memphis, uh, just like uh, uh, Zeke Naji. I was talking to his dad when he was at Arizona, as well as all – other nine guys that were drafted of Nigerian descent, and and so real early. By the way, on, so, maybe, some some of those names, Isaac Okoro, I believe, right for the Cavs, yep. who was the five pick, uh, Onyeka Okongwu for the Hawks. I mean, these are not the fifty fifth pick in the draft; these are lottery picks. Desmond Des- Bain, I think, right? Aaron Naismith from the Celtics. I mean, they, we we there are a lot of really good players that could have played this summer, but you know, they, they, I think they want to feel the program out. For, for right now. And, and having said that, I've gotten tremendous feedback from all of them as we've gone along. They're all interested in playing in the future. So so again, like you said, this team is deep and it can be really good for many years to come because the talent is so young. But, uh, uh, you know, probably about uh, March, April, um, the president of the Federation said to me, he said, hey, will you stay on past the Olympics and help build the program? And at the time, I, you know, I didn't want to commit. I, I said, I said, well, you know, let, let's wait and see what happens at the Olympics because at the end of the Olympics, you may not like me anymore. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, I said, I may not like you either. So, so, and that was part of the reason why I went to Kigali, Rwanda to coach in Afro Baskets so the Federation could feel me and I could feel them as well as some of the players. But uh, uh, the, the talent pool is is tremendous. And early on, I started to recognize it just based on. Uh, uh, the, the guys that were in college and the success that they were having and what I was going to, what I was hearing for the 2020 NBA draft. And it turned out to be true because nine of them got drafted uh, in, in that year's draft. Yeah. We've been hearing for seemingly 10 years now about Canada is the next great international power in basketball. And they just keep kind of hitting the roadblock in Olympic qualifiers. It's hard to qualify for the Olympics, by the way. 12 teams get in and great teams don't get in. It's no shame to not get in. And then you beat Team USA. And it kind of goes under the radar because it's an exhibition. The finals are going on. But but people that I know in the international community started hitting me saying, you got to start paying attention to this because this team is good. They're good now. And if they can do something in the Olympics – this could be a moment that we look back on in 20 years and say, that's the moment where all the stories about untapped potential and hidden talent turn into some turn into something, a, a totally different story, a, a, a completely constructed pipeline, a well-organized Nigerian basketball federation, all of it, right? Do you sense that kind of opportunity? I, I do. And, and, you know, just to, just to be able, you know, all our guys obviously are, are playing for Nigeria and they're playing for each other and their families and all that. But Jack, it's for us, it's bigger than that. You know, the countries in Africa 
don't get the respect, uh, don't get the coaching, don't get the, you know, the tools necessary to build powerhouse programs. The talent's there, the length and size is there, but everybody looks at, at, at basketball in Africa as an afterthought. They, they want those countries to come to the international competitions to get them ready for, to get the other countries ready for, you know, the quarterfinals and the semifinals. So, let, you know, let's play this game against uh, Tunisia or let's play this game against Nigeria. Or let's play this game against Senegal. The nice warm-up game. There's some athletes. We can see what we need to do. Get our, get, you know, play everybody so that now we're getting re- ourselves ready for the next round. And, and so for us to be able to, uh, you know, get uh, more than the country and I did, but get, get the continent excited and beyond uh, and, and hopefully unite everybody is, is man, it, it makes the passion even creep higher because that's what it's all about. It's about growing the game there so that we can, well, everybody can really see what that continent can bring to the table when it comes to basketball. And, and it, it, it's so untapped that uh, I'm excited for it for five, ten years out, and hopefully I'm a part of this thing long term. Yeah, I was talking to a couple of members of your staff, and, and I could sense just through the phone the excitement of, you know, we took this job. We get, we're giving up our summer for this yeah. job and maybe, fut- and maybe future summers. And you never know quite what you're getting into in international basketball, particularly with a country that does not have a lot of huge success in the rear view. The sense of excitement that they feel of, we may have just gotten in, maybe not on the ground floor, but somewhere in the middle or beginning of a journey that could be really, really special for all of us. It, it, I, I was envious of the excitement I felt just hearing their voices. So I heard it, and I talked to Masai Ujiri, the president of basketball operations for the Raptors. Obviously, he's from Nigeria. Um, I, he, he, and he said he was okay with me asking you this. I don't know if it was after the USA game or the Australia game, but apparently he came in your locker room after the game and spoke to the team. And I wonder if you could tell people sort of what that was like and what he said. No, it, it was great. It, you know, because when you think of uh, basketball in Nigeria, well, shoot, not just basketball in Nigeria, but basketball on the continent of Africa, uh, especially before the BAL got kicked off, uh, you thought of Masai. Masai was the front and center of uh, basketball Africa, in my opinion. And, and I think in a lot of other people's opinion too, for what he's done uh, for that continent and and what he's going what he's continuing to do for that continent. So for him to be able to to be able to come to one of our games, it was against Australia and speak to the team. Uh, it just validated uh, the the direction that we're heading is is the right way or is the right direction to go. And guys were pumped. They were excited to see him. They were excited to hear from from him. And and all that's going to do is just give the program uh, and what we're trying to do more credibility for years to come. What was the gist of his his speech to the team? It just I, I heard it was something to the nature of you know we're all watching, we're all very proud. It's that kind of thing. I, I was one hundred percent. He he's hit it right on the head. He he just relayed the excitement that not only he is feeling, but what everybody, especially in Nigeria, is feeling. Uh, how proud they all are of what we accomplished. Although it is, uh, it was only a couple of exhibition games, but how proud. Uh, that he was and, and everybody else was for us to accomplish that and, and, and bring hope to, to a country of you know, two, 300 million people. And he wanted to, us to know that, that he was behind us 100% and as well as the rest of the country. And he looked forward to us going to, to Tokyo and representing like we had in Vegas. 
And you and you've laid out expectations. I mean, you have you've I think you've said the M word metal or at least contend for a metal like you're you're setting out expectations of we're not just like happy to be there and and have a good time. We made the Olympics so only 12 teams. Make it's a big deal. Like you think now it gets tough because these European teams, they know these international competitions like the back of their hand. They know how to navigate them. They've all played right. together. So it's going to be tough. But you're you've set out pretty lofty expectations. You think you can do some damage there. I do. I, you know, just the group of guys that we have on this team, they're extremely committed. Uh, but, but Zach, more importantly, I, and I told our guys this from day one, I said, I said, you know, if you, and I've studied the past Olympics and even world championships, watched a ton of film. And the, to me, the bottom line is you have to be connected as a team. I, even the late Kobe Bryant, when I coached him in LA, I, I asked him, I said, I said, if there was one common denominator that your championship teams had, what would it be? And he goes, he goes, you know what, Mike? He said, a lot of people look at myself and Shaq having these disagreements or whatever during our Laker days. He said, but the bottom line is we were like brothers. You know, brothers have disagreements. He said, but our teams, our championship teams were all connected. He said that connectivity mattered more than anybody can understand or ever feel especially when moments got thick during our playoff runs. And I wholeheartedly believe that. I, I believe that's why a lot of these Europeans uh, that have established youth programs and that raise these players together uh, amongst their youth programs and, gra and graduate them to the senior men's team, that's why they're able to compete with USA Basketball right now is because of the connectivity that they have as a unit starting at 15, 16, 17 years old. And so for us, we're kind of in the same boat as the USA where we don't have a youth program established. I'm a new coach. These are new players. And so we have to try to find ways to connect the group. And our group has to try to find ways to get connected before any of this begins so that we even give ourselves a chance going into the Olympics. And, and on top of that, I'd say that too, is we don't have a true point guard. <laughs> you know, we, we're playing Josh Okogi. Uh, we're playing Obia Magano at the point guard position. And so it's it's even tougher than than that. But our guys, the connectivity that they've established in this short amount of time uh, has been a big thing. And we believe that it's going to help us get over the top as well as our talent. Someone told me every team meeting you guys have, you pick a young player on the team and have that player sing the Nigerian national anthem just as a way for everyone to sort of some, – some, some people don't know. You, so you don't have a Nigerians on the coaching staff, really, a lot of them. So is that true? And, and who's, been, who's got the best voice so far? Is it, cool? it must be cool for them, right? Or, or are they shy? Are they shy? What do they do? Uh, I'll tell you what, Zach, you're amazing. <laughs> I, you're amazing to know that. I, well, yes, we do. I, 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 you know, it's – some of the initially they were a little shy. I, I Stan Okoye, uh, who's been with the program uh, for for a handful of years now, um, he, he obviously is real passionate about the national anthem, and uh, he talked about making sure that everybody knew it before the Olympics. And so I I just came up with the idea of you know what, we're gonna have you know everybody stand in front of the room and lead us in singing the national anthem and. Uh, you know, we're we're kind we're getting there. We're getting a little bit better. Uh, Casey Akpala, I think he was the youngest. He started us off. Uh, he's he's getting a, he's getting a, a little heat now. I, I wish I could show you. I wish I could show you my text. Uh, uh, our text chain for our, our group message because uh, Jordy Fernandez he shot back home with his uh, with his wife and kids just for a day before meeting us out in the bay. And and I, I know you guys can't. Maybe you might be able to see it, but. 
So he sent us his I two precious him. babies. Okay, yep. and 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 they're singing the national anthem. Wow! Uh, and, 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 and you know, and he's got the music going on in the background, and he sent it to the group. And, and Jordy, Jordy said, "No days off. Everyone keep practicing." And so ah, everybody, I love it. yeah, everybody was loving it. And they're and, wearing and, green and white. I can see in the photo they got green and white got, on. Yes, they got their Nigerian shirts on. And, and but I would like, I'd like to say this. So everybody commented on here, and then uh, one of our players, uh, one of our players said, "Here, here we go," because uh, KZ was the first one. One of our players goes, uh, uh, it was Chima Maneki. He goes, at KZ Akpala, keep practicing, bro. And then everybody started just <laughs> slamming KZ because you know, he was the first <laughs> one. And it was tough for KZ to get the rhythm down initially for, you know, for young KZ. But, but uh, we, we have a lot of fun, and, and, and that, that's proof of it right there. The other fun thing was you guys went bananas. I, I think it was the Team USA game where for the first time – I th- was it Medu who did the international knock it off the rim on a on a shot, and, and it's like you guys have been talking about this, learning the rule, and like finally someone in the game actually does it. I don't think you had done it even in a practice, right? Was it Metu that did it, and you guys like threw a party on the bench? Yeah. So another guy, Sammy Gelfon, who's uh, the analytics coach with the Detroit Pistons. Uh, Sammy's been fantastic. It's been his res- his main responsibility to teach all of us. Uh, the different uh, nuances of international play. And so he puts on a little clinic. He's fi- he finds film and he puts on a little clinic almost daily on a new rule that uh, we need to learn. And so one of the, the rules is, is you can knock the ball off the rim. And so, you know, we saw a video of it. We even practice it a couple of times. Uh, Mike Benajay actually was the one I think that did it in, he did it in a, uh, in a practice. He did well. He did it in a practice first, uh, but but it, it's something that yes, we have worked on and highlighted as a staff led by Sammy Gelfon you know, of the Detroit Pistons, and our guys have picked up on that as well as a few other things uh, very well, very well. This interview has been fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Well, I wish you guys luck in the Olympics. We're all going to be watching. Obviously, it's a big moment. I, I hope it works out well for you. It is the finals, so I get to ask you a couple of finals questions. Are you've been to some finals in your days, your days, coach? A lot of them, actually. Okay, two finals questions. You will allow me, okay? Yes, fair two, enough. Two thousand three, you were an assistant with the San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. Against the New Jersey Nets in the finals, you're in Game Six. You're up three two. This is like the forgotten fourth quarter of the last twenty years. You're down, I think, four heading into the fourth quarter in game six, facing a potential game seven. Everybody remembers these Nets series as walkovers for the Western Conference team. You're staring at game seven. You outscore the Nets 31-14 in the fourth quarter to win the title. Um, I what, what memories come to mind of like the huddle between the third and the fourth or of that quarter? Like when I say, what, when I say that fourth quarter, what do you remember? Well, the, the, the biggest thing though, Zach, is, is uh, we were, da- I think we, we were down every quarter. <laughs> we lost every quarter going into the fourth. But the one thing that I do remember is the leadership on that team was outstanding. Not 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 good, not even great, but it was freaking outstanding. And, and starting with Greg Popovich to Steve Smith to Danny Ferry to Steve Kerr to Kevin Willis and just as importantly, David Robinson. We had some true veterans on that team that were leading us 
uh, obviously starting with our head coach, but more importantly with the players. And so I just remember, even though we basically lost every quarter uh, and we were down going into the fourth, just the poise and the confidence that everybody had when Pop was addressing the group. There was no panic. There was no worry. Uh, there was just a calmness about the group that was unbelievable. And, and the crazy part about it is I think with about uh, eight, seven, eight, nine minutes left in the game, we, we got to a point where we were down 10, and then we just took off. We went on a 20-0 run, 25-0, whatever it was, to, to end up breaking the game wide open. But, I again, I truly believe it was the leadership on that team and then the experience of being to second finals for a guy like Tim Duncan to be able to pull us through because uh, there wasn't any panic at all. Uh, beers on me if you can name the leading scorer for the Spurs in the fourth quarter of that game. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, David Robinson? Nope. <clears throat> uh, what, I know ja Steven Jackson was huge for us. There you uh, go, Steven okay, Jackson. I, I actually was going to say him first, but he – he is the forgotten person of our run that year. You know, everybody highlights, obviously, David because he he's, was retiring, and then Tim because he's Tim. But Steven Jackson saved our behinds more than once during not just that series, but during that playoff run in 2003. And he was huge for us uh, in, in, in that game. I mean, he was huge for us in the Dallas series. He, he won a game for us in the Dallas series and a couple other series. But, but yeah, I – I knew Jack was big. I didn't know he led us in the fourth. Nine points on three of four, all threes. Um, last one. You also had the – you were the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2007 when LeBron makes his first finals. And I just wonder, you're a young – how old are you at that time? Early 30s? Mid-30s? No, no uh, uh, 37. Yeah, 37. 37. Mid-30s. Yeah. Uh, I'm counting that as mid 30s. Seven as someone who's in his mid 40s. I'm I'm keeping mid until the until the last eight is when you turn to late. Um, uh, so you're young. The team's young. You have this young yes. superstar who is already sort of a global icon to himself, and you're playing this just steely, nasty veteran. Yeah quiet, no pomp and circumstance. How did you, what do you remember about just preparing either LeBron personally or just that team for, hey, here's what this is going to feel like and look like and how it's going to be? Like, what do you remember about that process? It was extremely tough because we were young. We were very inexperienced. Not only that, yes, I was in my mid-30s and first time as a head coach in the finals. But to top it off, you know, remember when, San, when I was in San Antonio, Pop had gotten to the point, he's like, hey, you need three NBA All-Stars on your team in their prime uh, to have gone to multiple All-Star games in order to have a chance to win a championship. And at that time, I think we had a total of four years of NBA All-Star experience, two by LeBron and I think two by Zadrundas, who was past that. You know, and, and, and the Spurs had 19 or something crazy. And so we were trying to get our guys to understand uh, how hard this was going to be and how good they were going to be compared to the regular season. I'll never forget this. Our first practice in, in San Antonio preparing for the finals, uh, we're stretching, and our assistant trainer is walking around with a camcorder uh, uh, just recording the stretching, uh, recording our, our head trainer or strength coach stretching the guys. 
And so I go over to him and, and I'm like, I'm like, wait, wait, what are you, what are you, what are you doing with the camcorder? He goes, oh, coach, everybody's so excited here. They just, they just want to document everything. And I'm like, oh my God, we're in trouble. We're recording, we're recording <laughs> a stretching, and, and we haven't even tipped off for game one. I, I was. I was petrified. And so I, I literally got on him in front of the team. I don't know whose idea it was, but I got on him in front of the team. I thought, I said, put the camera, camcorder back. We're here to win. We're not here on a Disney World trip. This is serious business. We can't be overwhelmed with, with the excitement of being here. We got to flock in and focus on trying to win game one. And, you know, to our guys' credit, they fought. Uh, we got a little bit better every time. Our, the last two games, I think both games were maybe a one-possession game. And and uh, But, it, you know, I knew just overcoming the experience that they had uh, as a veteran team and being an experienced fi uh, finals team was going to be tough for all of us, including myself. And it, it kind of showed. But, uh, you know, I, I give my guys credit uh, for the team that we had assembled compared to the other teams that we beat along the way and even being competitive in, in the last two games uh, of the finals. Uh, I can't ask for anything more. Well, that's the and that the, for some reason that playoff run gradually got erased from the LeBron James debate in like 2010, 2011, 2012, where there was just so much noise, a cacophony of noise about, yeah. is he clutch? Is he a choker? Does he pass out of, does he pass too off of the game? I'm like, yo, this dude scored 25 points in a row against the Detroit Pistons. Did anyone, did, did that, did I imagine that? Did I hallucinate that? I mean, that was, that was as great a scoring performance as you will have, period, in a, I believe that was game five to go up 3-2, was it not? 100%. It, 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 he did some things that I, I, I agree with you. In my opinion, people have easily forgotten about because, you know, because obviously he's won championships in other spots. But if you compare those teams to this team and what he did to get this team to the finals, I, it's no comparison. It's no comparison at all. And, and hopefully one day people will highlight some of the things that he did for, for, for the Cavaliers his first time around, especially in 07, because – uh, he put us on our he put us on his back and he carried us uh, as far as we can go. All right, coach. It's it's Thursday. I think you're you're leaving in like a few days, right, for Tokyo. We are leaving in a few days for Tokyo, so around the nineteenth or twentieth. We we're we're still not Team USA, so we don't have a charter schedule. <laughs> we're we're kind of figuring it out as we go along, but we'll get there in some way, shape, or form. Trust me. I like it. I like it, Coach. Well, stay safe, travel safe, and uh, there's a cool story brewing with Nigerian basketball. Pay attention during the Olympics. I wish you luck out there, and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Coach Mike Brown. Yeah, thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate you. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.